Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're interviewing a special guest, Barry Bubaltz with NRCS. But with me today are Bill Schomburg. Hey guys. Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So today we have with us the NRCS Wisconsin GLRI coordinator. Did I get that right, Barry? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Barry Buwaltz. So Barry, we've worked with you for a long time. You've been around Northeast Wisconsin for a long time, and we're happy to have you here. So thanks for taking the time out of your day. Yeah, I'm glad to sit in here with you guys and uh, share some share some insights. All right. So it's I know you're big into hunting and it's getting to be that time of year are you excited for opening weekend gun hunting i'm sure you've been out in the bow stand but yeah spent a little time out in the bow stand but uh you know gun hunting season's always a, a pretty special time in our our family tradition with my with my dad and so um i always look forward to getting out there my daughter's daughter hunts a little bit too so okay. um yeah just looking forward to that time and so what's the count what's the um the deer camp count of people is it 30 is it five <laughs> no it's really um it's really small it's kind of was my my dad and my uncle and and myself and my uncle's past but uh so it's kind of my dad and myself and um my daughter's starting to uh hunt with us a little bit that's cool yeah my son has been coming out uh hopefully this year he's a little bit older um he'll last more than a morning usually it's opening morning he's there till like 10 11 and then it's like all right, I want to go home, Dad. Like, okay. That's pretty good for, he's 11? 10. 10? 10. Yeah, yeah, that's so, pretty good. So this year he's talking big. He's like, oh, I think I'm going to go every day but Thanksgiving. Because we usually go sure. Thanksgiving morning for a little while before lunch. And he's like, I want to watch the Macy's Day Parade. But other than that, <laughs> otherwise I'll be out there. Like, okay, all right, we'll see what happens. As long as there's enough snacks, right? Right, yep. Yeah, snacks and books and whatever else to keep him occupied when, he's, yep. when you're not seeing the deer wander through the woods. This year will be interesting. With there's not a, this was a big week for getting corn off the week ahead of Thanksgiving, so that seemed like. But it, you could tell some people were leaving some fields for deer hunting as well. Yeah. But it'd just be interesting with how much corn is on in the area yet. Might have you have you seen many bucks out there, Barry? Or you, what are you seeing for? Are you getting excited, or is it more of a, a muted just patience? Yeah, no, um, like you said, there's still quite a bit of corn standing in places, and so, um, yeah, we've been seeing deer, and I'm, I guess, personally, not just the right one yet, I've kind of been looking for something a little bit bigger, but um, it's always exciting, you know, and come opening morning or during gun season, they run around, people chase them around, so you never know. Do people drive deer like they used to? Not to the level that they used to. No. I mean, yeah, what like, changed that? You're right, that used to be, you talk, and... Do I got it right? Like opening weekend, you usually wouldn't drive yet until later. Like it seemed like around Thanksgiving that you're you're getting questions from Bill and I that don't know anything about deer hunting. So <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah, these guys don't they don't get it at all. No, we don't understand. So any uh, yeah, no, I think years ago it was just more like a you know a neighborhood thing where you get together and drive deer, and now there's you know. <clears throat> people are looking at their property lines more like, well, these maybe are, mm. this is my land and, you know, trying to keep my sanctuary with my, my deer I'm looking at. So, um, it's kind of unfortunate that way because, yeah. What's that know. thing called where they wait for the bigger bucks? Um, 
Quality trophy hunting. Quality oh, quality deer, deer management. management. QDM. You think yeah. like again outside looking in? It seems like when QDM started, that's when drive you know driving bucks went away because it was like nope, these are I, I'm QDMing my property. <laughs> You don't get to drive here. You guys shoot everything. You know, Brown, it's down over there. So, yeah, like a different. My, yeah, that's probably, you know, about that time frame where okay. things really, you know, kind of changed. Change. Too. My great uncle was always one. His his tagline was, can't drop a deer if there's no lead flying. <clears throat> so he, he was the type to unload his gun, you know, a, when he'd see a deer. And I think that, you know, that older generation had different views and qdms kind of come in now with the younger generation and there's less hunters too less of the younger generation out there yeah i mean opening day years ago used to be you know pretty loud and um <laughs> chaotic with shots and now you know it's a lot less uh, was, was that a fr- like a freezer filling mentality like we needed to get a lot of deer to fill our freezer versus like we just gotta have the biggest buck yeah i think that's part of it um, sure. Before yeah. it was fill your freezer. Now it's fill the wall. Like, <laughs> yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are still you know hunting for meat, obviously out there, but um, it has changed. Yeah, I would agree. All right, you guys ready to pelt Barry with some questions? Ooh, <laughs> do my best. All right. So uh, I think the first one because you've been in NRCS as long as. I could remember, like, when, when did you get your start? Not to call you old, Barry. Oh, no. old. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I started with NRCS in uh, 1999. So, yeah, I've got, I'm going to be having uh, 25 years in here shortly. But, yeah, coming out of uh, out of college, I, I started with NRCS in Lower Michigan. So spent a couple um, years down in Lower Michigan. And then um, I had to go up in the UP and be a UPer for a couple of years. And so that <laughs> that's an experience that... Uh, I will always hold and in, in, in treasure, but uh, after a couple of years of living up there and uh, actually got married, and my wife really wanted to come back to uh, <laughs> Wisconsin, and so I uh, came back to uh, Shano and uh, have been in Shano basically living there since. So, okay. It is neat how NRCS moves you around. I mean, right, you, you kind of got to start, get initiated somewhere, and then they, they move. So you see different areas, see different farmers, yep. different mentalities, different... Yeah, you know, at the time, it's maybe a I little bit being... uh, difficult, but, um, you know, in years ago, it used to be more movement, like it, you had to move. Um, and now that that mentality's changed um, a little bit, but, you know, getting that experience in different types of agriculture, you know, I was in lower Michigan with, you know, irrigated seed corn and potatoes and tomatoes. And Is that the area? Ah, what was the city that we were just talking about? Uh, oh. So we, a couple weeks ago, we were just talking about... Um, seed corn yeah and three rivers the, constantine. constantine constantine is the yes. capital the seed, seed corn capital of the the world i think yeah yeah when i was there pioneer was on one side of the road and dekelb was on the other we were side. looking at the yep. map yeah we couldn't believe how close they were and yep. they would yeah you'd think there'd just be a shots fired or they'd be sneaking over and like snipping plants at night like, <laughs> right. oh, oh no no detassel you just yeah detassel the wrong carry, ones right yeah. yeah or no you'd carry a yeah, pollen over and oh yeah just shake it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i started down there and then uh you know went to the the north woods of the up for a couple of years too so before coming back to dairy country here that's cool yeah, the seed corn is definitely a way, a way different. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it here in the Central Sands in Wisconsin, but it's—I imagine there—it's a whole different ball game there. Yeah, I mean, with 
with those two companies sitting there, it was pretty intense. Um, you know, we had at that time we had Heinz um, in Lower Michigan too, growing tomatoes, so um, potatoes, double crab green beans, um, and mixed a few hogs and for uh, <laughs> for good effect. for good variety. So, what did you grow in the UP? What was up there? Well, believe it or not, you know, um, at that time there was still a number of dairies up in the UP. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> I always tell people, like, when you drive through the UP on the major highways, you don't see the agriculture. Right. The agriculture is off the main the main roads. But, um, yeah, I worked in a, about five counties in the western end of the UP. So, But a lot of grass-based um, beef um, was up there. It was also the time when TB or tuberculosis was in Michigan, so that really had hurt the hurt the industry at that point. Um, but um, a lot of windshield time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I get it, I bet. between yeah. farms. Those counties are a little bit bigger, right? Than a little ours? bit bigger, different couple time zones. Um, <laughs> so it was a it was an interesting time. Now I think marijuana is the biggest crop up there, <laughs> <laughs> at least according to all the billboards we see. On yeah, 41. that's true. <laughs> Go between uh, Oshkosh and Appleton, and you'll. Or Fond du Lac and Oshkosh, you'll see a few. Yeah. Yep. So I, <clears throat> I hope you take this in the right way, Barry, but I think all of us feel you've always been easy to work with, and I think a lot of our farms that work with you enjoy working with you. So why do you think your approach has been so successful in dealing with agriculture, both consultants and farms? Well, first, thanks for that, for that comment. Um, you know... I guess, you know, I had the opportunity to grow up around dairy farming in the O'Connell County area, and so um, that really kind of gave me a background and a passion for agriculture. And so, um, you know, and when I'm talking about conservation, whether it's NRCS, you know, whether, you know, what we're talking about today, um, it's about relationships. It, it truly is about relationships, and I tell our staff that too. Um, you know, we can know our agronomic things or, or conservation backgrounds, but... Um, until you build that relationship with with people, you gain their trust. Um, you know they understand that you're there trying to help them. Um, you know maybe we're trying to make changes, but um, you have to realize that uh, you know these folks have been on their farm for many years, generations, and so sometimes coming with ideas is a little bit shocking. And so you get you kind of got to go slow and build, like I said, build trust, build relationships, and um, and every one of them has you know, different driving forces, um, behind it. And so, you know, the, the last thing I can say about that is, you know, all farms aren't the same and you really just have to listen. Listening is, is extremely important when you're, when you're, you know, getting onto a farm or working with folks. And so, um, you know, treat them well, be honest. And you don't know something, tell them you don't know it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's something that in our line of work too, that we always, tried to impress on people is it's it's okay to say i don't know or i will get back to you like don't feel you gotta tell them something just because they put you on the spot like they'll they'll understand what i always like barry working with you is just flexibility right because nrcs sometimes can be you know we come from a national level right so they're trying to make programs for the whole country well wisconsin's much different than up is much different than Montana. So it was always, always nice working with you, Barry. And then because we know that, okay, we need cover crops on this many acres. Well, it just didn't work out that way this year to get that done. And it's like, okay, well, we'll make it work. And that's, I think flexibility is the awesome part about working that way. 
It, well, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, dairy country, you know, we kind of were talking about that. Dairy rotations, dairy country, you have to be flexible as far north as, as we are. And, um, you know, the other aspect of it is just communication. You got to be, right. in, we got to be in touch with these guys. You know that from your business and from, you know, what we do. Um, you know, it's just not a one and done conversation each year. Right. So lately, uh, at least for me, working with you, a lot of it's been dealing with soil health. So why do you think soil health is so important? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a question we could probably talk on for about, right. a, for about a day. Yeah, that could be the whole episode. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was kind of thinking about that, the soil health and you know why it's really important. Um, and it, I think it really just comes back down to maintaining productivity of our soils. I mean, when you think about a family a family farm wanting to pass it on from one, one generation to the next, you want to maintain productivity on that, on that land and you want to protect it. You want to improve it. You know, a lot of times we're running into to fields that maybe are newly acquired there where we have a lot of opportunity for, for improving. And so, um, you know, when I, when I'm looking at soil health, I'm, I'm thinking about organic matter. Um, you know, that one really stands out to me. Um, like I said, maintaining productivity and, and, you know, as we're going through this, you know, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, GLRI, you know, there's a lot of emphasis here, obviously, in the Great Lakes region and the financial resources that are, are coming to this area, but water quality is tied to it. And so um, going out and talking water quality to a producer, um, while they're going to listen and they, and they understand it, um, you know, soil health really resonates with them. And so um, if you can show them how to have good soil health and water quality is going to come along for the ride, if we have good soil health, um, that's been kind of a, a winning uh, winning approach, I would argue. Sure. I, I like what you said at the start there with a lot of farmers look at what they're passing down in the next generation in in sort of material, like, like we'll use a dairy farm, in the barns, in the tractors, in the sort of the equipment, if you will, in that asset. Even the like genetics of their dairy cows, Good right? Point. Like You're as right. much like, as genetics is like gone you, this yep. year. You or, take pride in that of yep. like, okay, I'm passing this very good equipment, all that down, and I think soil has to come into that, and it's yep. hard to tangibly see that, and it's hard for your neighbors to see that, but I think the next generation would, would know that and know that, okay, this is very, you know, improved soil from what you started with is always a good thing to be that kind of steward of the land that you, you know, you don't look at it as you're owning it. You look at it as you're taking care of it and how can you make it better? Yeah, I was just, uh, I was thinking back to like one of, one of our demo farms told us and what his dad told him is like, you take care of the land, the land takes care of, Mm -hmm. takes care of you. And, you know, that just kind of, that sums it up really well right there. So that's really good. Yeah, I like that. How's that? Go? You take care of the land. So the land no, the land no, takes no, care of it. it. It's even. You can't even screw it up. Right. You can't even like. <laughs> Doesn't have to be like, your bowl. Right. You get a good yeah. look at a bowl by sticking your head up the. Wait. It's <laughs> got to be your bowl. So, when we look at soil health, and I think a lot of people do define it a little bit differently. I think overall the. The general of soil health is making your soil better. I think that I think everyone would agree with. But you know, there's different looks, different times of uh, applications, and different things that people look at it that are different when it comes to healthy soil. So, what what does healthy soil look like to you? Do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, we've been batting this around for a couple of years in regards to soil health tests, and maybe we we'll, we'll, might hit on that later. But, um, you know, soil health to me, um, a lot of it comes down to your eyes. Um, and so when you can go out in that field and you maybe see your cover crop from last fall or your residue from last fall being cycled through that, um, you know, being cycled by the, the biology in the soil, um, you know, maybe it's the earthworm mittens that are um, on the surface. Um, you know, the fact that we don't have compaction, you know, you can shove that penetrometer in the ground and there's there's no compaction. Um, you know, just we got so used to seeing that crust layer on the surface with tillage over the years. And when you don't see that and we have good infiltration of, of rain and we got coverage on that soil, those are things that really kind of stand out in my mind, you know, and you guys walk a lot of fields too. And so you can tell really quickly when you're just walking on a field, like this field's hard or, you know, this field feels soft on my, on my feet. And so those things, and you know, probably the best soil health testing piece of equipment we have is a shovel. So sure. Um, they can tell you a lot. I like that Barry. Cause I think we, we tend to over, exaggerate of knowing what's healthy or not i think that you summed it up well of you just kind of know and you don't and we've all seen it and know especially the, to me the opposite like you know what unhealthy soil is <laughs> very much so you've been on that and you go oof this has problems yep. so it might be hard to sort of push what exactly healthy is but it's definitely if we know what unhealthy is we know that the, mm-hmm. the opposite's good that middens word is new to me Oh, you've never heard of earthworm mittens? Middens. 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 It's like the castings, basically. All right. Have you heard that one, Bill, or not? Yeah. Okay. Dang, that's new to me. Wow. We're teaching them something today. Oh, I like this. That's right. Classes. I'm just picturing earthworm with mittens on. (laughs) Yes. And it is It's one on each end. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually middens. Middens. All right. With a D. Yeah. I think along with that comes... Different types of farmers. Every, like you said before, every farm is different. You've got never till, no till, um, minimal till, conservation till. You know, all we could name all these different things. But do, what do you see as tillage's place in a quote unquote no till system? Is it is it taboo, or is there a time when tillage makes sense? Yeah, I mean, we have we have the whole gamut of folks out there. You know, some that are. Um, you know, believe in full tillage, some that, you know, any kind of tillage being, you know, no-till would be an absolute sin. Um, you know, and, and while I'm probably closer to the, you know, the no-till, or I'm, am closer to the no-till end of it, you know, there's there's times when we have to do a little bit of dress-up tillage. You know, we'll get a rut, you know, at, get precipita- precipitation that, you know, causes some rutting at at harvest um you know we run into fields that were you know maybe new fields that are being picked up by the producer that have compaction or you know we got compaction from something um you know and sometimes a a deep rip is something that we have to do out there or inline rip to um you know get that field going back in the right direction and so um i guess from a tillage standpoint i i'm not a i'm not against it um, when it's needed, but as long as we know that there's consequences that, you know, you know, come with it. And so, um, tillage is disrupt, disruptive, you know, to biology. Um, as long as we keep that in mind and, and limit it to 
only the absolute necessary times. So. We talk about uh, recreational tillage. We've talked about it a number of times on, on our podcast here. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we've espoused kind of the same idea. Like there's a time for tillage, a time that works, but just tilling for the sake of tilling is not probably the best idea when it comes to managing your, your soil health. What do you see specifically at Interrupt in the biology? Is it obviously the physical disturbance, the addition of oxygen? What Do you think there's certain things that are worse than others that it's actually doing? Well, I mean, the tillage really just comes down to, you know, you're breaking up, you're breaking up any structure you're that you... Destroying structure. Yeah, yeah. you're destroying structure. Um, when you, you know, get into the biology, and I'm not into the biology as much as, you know, some of my... Um, you know, soil health specialists that we get the chance to work with. But when you start talking about the fungal interactions in soil and the hyphae, I mean, they're very, um, very delicate. And so when you get any tillage going on in there, that kind of structure gets um, disrupted and destroyed. And so, um, you know, and there's all kinds of tillages. There's tillages that are deep. There's tillages that are shallow. And so, um, you know, even some of the shallow ones that you know, we don't think or don't look very disruptive. Um, you know, we can still be putting a shallow compaction layer in there at two, three, four inches. And we, we saw that on some farms, you know, in the last couple years where maybe some of our vertical, excuse me, vertical till or high speed discs, um, while they're, while they're popular, if they're not used in the right way or the right moisture, we can get some compaction going on out there. We've all seen those soybean fields that just don't look right. And, and you get your shovel out. And, like, the roots go down, like, three inches and then just make a curve. Yep. Oh, yeah, we did that vertical tillage a little too wet this spring, and there's our line. Mm-hmm. So it happens. It's interesting you talk about disrupting soil structure because how many conversations have we had over the years of, like, oh, I'm I'm helping the soil by tilling, right? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but it's almost contradictory, when you think of it that way, like no, you're you're actually destroying everything we're trying to it, do here. It's a wrecking ball right. to a building, and then the rebuild, you got to let the soil rebuild itself. Like there's no mechanism, you know, running a crusher over it doesn't rebuild soil structure. So it is tricky, and that that is good to know, Barry, that you're saying that it is just the physical disruption is is the problem. Is that you're just destroying structure? Yeah, you're destroying structure. I mean, like I said, you're destroying biology. Um, but you know, you wouldn't take a wrecking ball to your house every year, right? Know? So it's no. There's times to remodel. There's times yep. to fix stuff. But I feel like my kids do. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball <laughs> happens, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you got you got to find an open field to let them hit the ball, not in the backyard. They, they like that. Why? Why the, do kids like to hit? We have in the plenty of room. room. You know what I mean? <laughs> plenty like, of room, but they always have to go in the front. It's of the like house. the the danger knowing you could break mom's favorite lamp and just to yeah like that's the home run fence yeah we have that in our house too (laughs) where it's like oh there's a ball in the house well let's kick the ball around in the house (laughs) yep yeah usually doesn't end very (laughs) well someone's broken or uh someone's not happy yep you know when your your kids are old enough to go outside and play ball when they're you know even those little ones that they used to play with when they were real little can do some damage Wife, what gives you a look like, well, why are we throwing the ball in the house? Sorry. <clears throat> um, it, yeah. p- it picks up during football season, by the way. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Throwing the ball around the <laughs> house. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's bad. Just wait, Todd. You're, you're a couple years old. Oh, they're, they're starting that. Yeah. yeah. Your boys are going to. 
Yeah, they're still in the keepy uppy stage at the, of like with the balloons Balloon, where you yeah. try to that part, but pretty quick it's going to be more chucking stuff. Yep. Yeah, last night they were chucking baseballs around. <clears throat> at least it's a balloon and not each other, like yeah, trying yeah. to yeah, throw each <laughs> other into the air and keep that them in the happen. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when we're looking at different ways of helping soil stay healthy, one of the things is cover crops and Obviously, you work with a lot of cover crops, but one of the more difficult times to get cover crops seems to be a corn grain and some of these systems where we don't have a window after harvest to really get things established. So have you seen any um, anything you think really works really well or any tricks for whether it's interseeding or aerial seeding or um, you know late season interseeding versus early, anything you've seen there that really stands out? Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, corn grain, like you said, is it's a difficult, difficult situation to you know incorporate a cover crop, and so we struggled with that for you know a long time. And I would just say, like, probably in the last uh, eight nine years, um, you know, the industry came along with with this interseeding concept of you know being able to straddle the corn rows at you know v v two to v four stage uh, corn and. And, you know, get that cover crop established between the rows. And so kind of started a little bit slow, but we've been we've been building momentum here in um, northeast Wisconsin. And so um, while we talk about corn grain, we've also had some of our, you know, our dairy farms also kind of grasp onto this. And, you know, whether that's for, you know, taking off the workload in the in the fall of getting covers established, um, there's other reasons, too. I mean, it's a great a great base to be able to put manure into um it's an opportunity to get legumes established that we struggle with in the fall but yeah just kind of going back to that you know that interseeding approach um like i said we're building momentum on it and um, more and more guys are are looking at that you know we went from uh starting eight years ago of having a two-row interseeder here in northeast wisconsin yeah. which uh, somebody was a horse with, pulling it yes yeah he didn't work in shawano drove. county county <laughs> so a lot of amish up there <laughs> <laughs> no somebody was joking with me if we had a horse pulling that two-row planter and well we probably probably could have um but uh so yeah, you know we got that concept here going in the watershed, you know, and, and folks saw it and they were like, yeah, I think we can work with this. And so, um, you know, some of our land conservation departments or um, you know uh, other entities were able to get some six row interseeders in here into the into the watersheds. And now we've got several twelve rows, and we got um, planters, and we got a couple guys that have built their own. Um, and so that has that has taken off and so that has opened up um a new way of getting covers established out there and it, it, it's exciting i it, it's it's pretty neat to see something growing in between corn rows and for that corn to come off here you know in late october early november and you know we have green growing between the between the the rows and so are we finding the trick is like you've got to plant like air earlier than late right is that kind of what we're seeing yeah, I would say we have to air a little bit earlier. Um, early on that, you know, the guidance, and a lot of it came out of Pennsylvania, and, you know, they were they were the leaders in that, and they were saying V4 to V7, and our climate's a little bit further north um, here, and so we've kind of said maybe more like V2 to V, um, V4, but at the same time, I think it's really important that 
at that time, you're looking at what that next 10-day forecast is. You know, if that corn's going to really start kicking off, we got to go. If we're looking at a cold week, you know, coming up, you know, maybe we have a little bit more time. And rain, right? I mean, we want... Yep. We want that... Get it seeded, get it rained, and boom, we get it off and running. Yep. It's uh, we're trying to do a lot of things in that field at the same time. We're trying to get that cover established. Um, we want it established enough so that, um, you know, it makes it through the year. We want the corn to grow so it shades it so that, you know, it doesn't continue to grow super vibrant all year long until it, you know, gets sunlight later in the year. Many of those interceders are putting nitrogen with the cover. Is it all of them? Some of them? Early on, that was kind of the plan was like, hey, let's put our, you know, let's put some side dress on at the same time. But honestly, when we're looking at that V2 to V3, it's a little bit probably on the early side for the nitrogen. Um, And so I can't say that some folks aren't doing it, but uh, I'd say the vast majority is strictly a seeding operation. Okay. I feel like those guys, like, there's so much to do then, right? We're maybe still planting some corn, first crops coming. Like those kind of you're spraying yet on some other fields. Like we just want to do it and get it done versus oh, I got seed, I got nitrogen. Those never match up when they're both empty at the same time. Like I know Matt and Barry, we've worked on one farm together for a handful of years and he just wants like, let's get it, get it done, get it out and out of here so that the next guy can use it. Sure. Instead yep. of trying to combine the work, right, you right. know, and do it on one pass, but it takes you longer just keep the separate passes so you can focus on one thing and do it right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I would say, and I don't know if you would agree, like, <clears throat> Barry, but from, you know, those two-row, four-row, six-row interceders, really, if you want to get acres done, it's, we've still got to size up to, I know, Outagamie's County's got a couple 12-rows. They're working on another one. Um, it's just... It's great for demonstration purposes, great to get the concept out there to show it can be done, but like anything else, it seems like size, size does matter size when it comes to, <laughs> to the interceding and some, just got to, yeah, I mean, so just, you know, going back, we got the concept into the watershed and now we've been, you know, industry and the producers have taken it, you know, to the next step. We've got the 12 rows out there. Um, and so we're seeing more of it, obviously. Can yeah. do a lot, quite a bit more with a 12-row than a 2-row here. So Yeah, I th- just a little. Yeah. A few more horses, though. <laughs> yes, sure. it does take a bigger <laughs> team of horses. Um, <clears throat> so what do you, as we talk about cover crops, tillage, what do you think is the most difficult part of having farms convert to uh, conservation practices? Do you think it's the getting away from the tillage, establishing the cover crops, the costs associated with those things, what do you think is the most challenging? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of a lot of cases, you know, we see you guys see this too as agronomists. Um, you know, it's a generational thing, and so this this approach has worked. I mean, tillage tillage did produce great crops, um, you know, over the years. Um, but so when we want to really try to look at making changes out there, it it's a risk. Um, there's a lot of unknowns. We might not have, you know, you might be one of the leading edge farmers that are, are trying to make some changes. And so it's kind of scary. Um, maybe people are looking at you and giving you comments like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've, and we've heard about that. And, and that's just your father, right? Right. You know I mean? it's, one thing, <laughs> it's one thing if it's a neighbor, but if it's your dad telling you that you're crazy and you're going to lose the farm, um, you know, <laughs> that's a little bit harder. <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, getting that knowledge out there, um, you know, the risk, you know, just, um, working with them. And that's kind of where I go back. You, you know, you gotta have those relationships. Um, you gotta, you gotta build trust on that farm. You gotta understand what, what they want to do. So, and, and I think that's extremely important. You know, they have to have buy-in. I guess to follow that up, do you think, because obviously we talked about water quality, erosion is a big part of, of tillage, um, cover crops, keeping, so, keeping our soil in our fields, mm-hmm. which I think all of us would agree is important. Do you think farmers really truly grasp the erosion on their, on their farm fields before, whether it's before or after no-till or other conservation practices? I guess I feel like, you know, once a soil health system is implemented on their field, they may understand and see the difference of what was happening out there for, you know, years prior. Um, You know, luckily here in northeast Wisconsin, we don't have a lot of, you know, long slopes or, you know, very steep ground in most places um, that some other places in our state have that, you know, showed that erosion year after year. But um, I guess where I'm going with that is, you know, the erosion that, you know, everybody can see from the field, that's one type of erosion. But, you know, the erosion that's within the field, just the movement of soil, the, the destruction of the destruction of structure, um, you know, the, the crusting that occurs, that's all actually erosion, too. So, um, you know, so when we start looking at that, you know, that, that's an important aspect. How would so. you how is crusting erosion? So when you're breaking down those, um, you know, surface aggregates, uh, 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 the structure in there, you're breaking it down into the smaller, smaller uh, pieces of soil. I guess you yeah, want to okay, say like the silty pieces. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're breaking that apart, and then when it's getting water added into it, it it, it becomes hard and it becomes like a crust, more like okay. a. Can you know, sidewalks, man. Get a new term, micro erosion. Micro, yeah. We've been batting that around. Like, is it micro erosion? Is it vertical erosion? So there's been a there's been a few things that uh, we've been talking about. But I do you know, could come up with your own term. Yeah, that'd be great. Right. I do know what I love as an agronomist not having to worry about crusting, like corn not coming up and all those issues that come around with. Yeah, that. Not having to go to the fence line and get the rotary hole. I say just to talk about a rotary hole that never worked anyway. I get a, you know, ner- that, I get a nervous ga- twitch. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we always talked whenever we would discuss that with farms, like, hey, it's some crusting. Do you have a rotary hole? And realizing that you're going to lose plants to gain plants. Like, they're, right. it, it, it was never like a this will just fix it. It's, there's a trade off. It's got to be this bad because we're going to lose this many plants. It's and never a great conversation. Right. <laughs> or a fun one to have. Like, which finger do you want to cut off? <laughs> How do you feel about the pinky ring finger? Like, what do we, what do we like? I do wish I could put farmers in my pickup truck on my drive home after a rain because I cross the Fox River every day. Yeah. And um, the east side of the river is just, when we get a significant rain like we got a couple weeks ago, you see the channels you know the where the water congregates and it comes down to the river they're brown and it's just it's like it's like uh, I, as an agronomist i lived in Wrightstown for seven years crossed that river and you are a different mindset yeah than the since moving from there and not crossing that you don't like i just like you say remember every time after rain seeing just that red that it would change that too and 
it's gotten much better over the years. You can see it, yeah, but it's still something that just, yeah, that you're right, Bill. When you, it's such a hard thing to visualize that any way you can, like what you just said about crusting. I would have never yeah. guessed that that's has anything to do with erosion, really. But I, it makes sense the way you explain. It's it. moving so, the soil. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, some of the things, and like you, you said, Bill, you know. It's really neat when you have a rainfall event going on and you have a field that's side-by-side, side, one that has a cover. Maybe it's a no-till cover versus you know a conventional till, and you can see water coming off of both of them, and one's clean and one's brown, and it's like that's an aha moment. Mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we get a few of those aha moments, but that's one of them when you can see it with your eyes right there. Speaking of brown... <laughs> well, we don't know where he's going. Go I don't know. Anywhere with this, Matt. Weird transition, but um, I think something that's been a, a hot topic, especially the last couple of years, and I know NRCS just kind of did a little bit of a revamp on their their protocols with is, is applying manure to mm-hmm. no-till systems. And so having, whether it's cover crops or just no-till, um, low Low disturbance manure injection, I think, is the correct term, or LDMA, LDMI, whatever you want to say. Um, have you? What are your thoughts on that? And have you seen a, a best approach, or are we still looking for that approach? Yeah. So you know, manure. Obviously, we're in dairy country here, and so you know, when we when we talk about no-till, we talk about cover crops. Um, sometimes I feel like those are the the, the two easy parts of the uh, the stool and um, manure always gets thrown and it's like how are we going to fit manure into this picture and so um, it, it's taken a little bit of time um, but I, I would say like here in the last 10 years um, that whole concept of low disturbance manure and so for you know many years we were taught we have to put that manure out there we have to bury it deep we have to invert the soil cover it up more or less so that we can't see it um, well, along with that came our lack of soil structure and our movement of, you know, soil and erosion. Um, and so we really needed to come up with how can we get this manure, you know, in the ground um, and still maintain our covers, still maintain our, our, our no-till system. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll give a credit a lot to Outagamie County probably about eight, nine years ago when they pulled that first low disturbance toolbar, I think it was a bazooka, um, into the watershed and, we really opened up some eyes. Um, and since that time, you know, industry has taken notice of that. Um, producers have demanded it from some of their, um, their custom operators that they want to move this, move this direction. And so we got a ways to go there yet. Um, but we're seeing more and more, um, LDMI low, low disturbance, uh, manure injection. Um, but you know, with that, there's a lot of ways to to put manure into a no-till system or into a, a soil health or a cover crop system. And so they all don't have to be injected. There's times when a surface application can be, you know, can be the right answer out there when we got something green and growing and can cycle those um, those nutrients. And so we're, we're seeing that on some farms that be are extremely successful with that approach. Um, so I really don't think that there's one way and one only way on a farm for uh, manure. I think it um, it depends on where we're at in the rotation. And, um, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit here at the table. 
dairy systems are complicated and they're complex. And so different times of years call for different times or different kinds of approaches. And so, um, but from NRCS's standpoint, um, you know, we're, we're really working on this uh, LDMI approach. Um, you're going to be hearing more about it here quite soon. Um, our cost share is going to be addressing that, uh, that practice. And so I think it's going to be pretty attractive to some producers um, that are, you know, maybe on the fence about whether they want to go there. Um, there might be some, there's going to be some financial assistance out there to help um, maybe make some of those conversions and, and at the same time help the, the custom operators, you know, um, make that decision whether or not they're going to add that tool to their arsenal. That's a good point, Barry. A lot of this manure industry is revolved around the custom applicators because there's so few of them and there's so much manure to get out that it's like, I really love the change on some farms in the philosophy of like your tunnel vision of like, I got to get manure out. I got to get manure out, and I can't do anything else until that manure is out. It's like, wait a minute, like harvest the corn, get the cover crops planted. We can put manure on cover crops. Like let's, let's not just focus on the manure, 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 and then we sacrifice everything else. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly true. And so we've talked about that for years. Like, you know, get the corn harvested, get the cover crop growing, you know, and, and some of our farms are very large. And so, you know, maybe manure is starting first on one side of the farm and cover crops are starting first on the other side. And, you know, we can, you know, those two things can meet and cross over as we move across across the farm when we're doing low disturbance or, you know, using some of these dribble bars or surface applications out there. Um, but yeah, it's very, it's very true. I mean, the, the old day of saying, hey, you know, we got to, we got to wait until all the manure is applied and you know then it takes a couple of days for it to dry out and maybe we got a rain event in <laughs> a couple, there a couple of weeks more like a couple yeah. weeks and so well and Todd didn't think about like rewind our life yeah. 30 years ago when we're trying to empty the slurry store in the back it felt like it took 3 weeks you well, know it, just it, well 30 it did take 3 weeks but agreed it, it you weren't moving <laughs> 8,000 gallon hoolies either. Yes. No, but the point is, like, now we can get so much more done in a quicker fashion, is what I'm getting at. It's, it's, fu- like- it's funny watching on, like, um, some of the Facebook manure kings or some of those. And there's a guy that posted just this week that he has, like, a million gallon pit and he wants to hire somebody to hose it because they could do it in a day and it would take him a week yeah. long with his hoolie. You know, he's just like, it's just a lot of work getting manure out that yeah. way and a lot of traffic, a lot of, you know, it's just the change is what hosing has changed and the distance we can hose properly now, the the amount, the size of these. I mean, remember the first bazooka that out of game he had, I think was on a six-inch line or even, I don't remember, but it was small. And, right. you know, just the all the scale, the way they're they're able to push gallons through now is is pretty amazing. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, and you're, you're right, Bill. They, we used to worry like manure first. We'll figure out everything else later. And I think if you put it the opposite way is, okay, well, let's, we're, let's figure out how we're going to do the cover crop, all that. And obviously then the manure can fall in. That, that works too. All right. Cover crop species. Well, we work with a lot of different ones. Um, and there's different, obviously different timings and everything else that makes sense. Um, you know, NRCS has a, standard of rates and different species for different times of year when to plant but um any that you really like that you don't like that you've seen like maybe maybe only has certain applications 
but one what's the most perennial i guess we'll start there <laughs> well yeah i mean the the one that you know is probably king in northeast wisconsin just from you know the timing that we have and the northern climate that we have is is winter cereal rye and so um you know some people you know don't have as much love for cereal rye as others um it just it takes management but um you know i guess just kind of going back to to species you know as we look back over the last 10 years you know 10 years ago radishes were like the new the new kid on the block yeah you know it was like you gotta plant radishes and you know and only radish and only radishes and, and you they gotta need to plant, be huge they yeah. need to be huge and you need to plant seven eight pounds I, per eight yeah yeah i remember the first one we did 10 pounds with jeff one of those. yeah it was like it, yeah it was a lot it did not work that's, well that's a small seed that's yeah a right, seeds <laughs> right. yeah now we're taking 10 pounds and putting that on 10 acres yeah, right. maybe 12 acres right. and so um you know so i think there's a lot of species out there. You just have to, you know, we have to make that mix for what we're trying to do. Number one, what's the goal? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to break up compaction? Are we trying to hold nitrogen? Are we trying to build nitrogen? Um, you know, are we trying to protect from erosion, build structure? There's, um, there's a lot of, a lot of thought processes that go into that. Um, obviously diversity is really a, a nice thing to get out there if we have the chance, but um, the thing I caution folks on is you, you don't need 12 or 13 species, you know, the first year when you're trying to plant a cover crop, let's, let's start, let's start simple, you know, let's start with something that, you know, can manage and, and cut your teeth on a little bit. Um, so, you know, after winter wheat is, you know, probably one of those learning, um, you know, 100 level, uh, times to put cover crops into a field, I would argue, that's um, the cover crop 101 of yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean it, it gives us some growing time yeah i mean that's where we saw our, our you know county county fair winning radishes that we used to plant um but it gives you a little bit of time for some diversity um when i'm putting mixes together i really like to look at you know trying to get a a broad leaf out there so whether that's a brassica family like a turnip or a radish a little bit of that you know a legume maybe a cool season grass a warm season um, grass if possible and so trying to get that trying to get that mix out there a little bit so um yeah there's a lot you can go into for cover crops we could talk about that for a while but um if you had to pick your i like those four categories so you're starting there's no starting four of anything that i know of but anyway you're starting for of each four. of those yeah which would what's what's the mix going to be out of those four yeah from a from a, like a broadleaf um and let's just talk about like after winter wheat. Um, I actually like turnips, so purple top okay. turnips a lot. They're super small seeded. Um, when we're looking at cost, three quarters of a pound of turnip goes a really long, hmm. really long way, especially if we got some manure in the, in the mix. Um, you know, when we're looking at a, a cool season grass, um, just a little bit of oats or barley is, um, it's relatively cheap. It grows fast, you know, in that, middle of august uh of time frame um and then a legume and so there's a couple legumes out there but it's really hard to beat a little bit of red clover or um and crimson clover in my opinion yep. are, are two really good species and um and then something that overwinters i think that's really important that we have something green and growing there in the spring 
Um, and so whether that's a, you know, a winter weed or whether that's a, a winter cereal rye, winter triticale, those are, you know, obviously our best, uh, our best winter cereals. Is there a warm season grass that you've had luck with? Those seem to be hard to, yep. well, one price wise, they can be, can be costly, but yeah, any of those that have been your heavy hitter? Yeah. From a warm season grass, um, you know, most of the time we're looking at those, that sorghum species or, um, some of our millets, um, we've yeah, been playing okay. around with too. So, okay. Um, those would be good bets. So if we pop that after corn, we're going to change this a little bit. Like uh, the sorghum's probably out. Yeah. After corn, we're going to be changing a lot. You're talking corn silage. Silage, Sorry, silage, yeah. silage, silage. Yeah. So middle of September, you think? Yeah. Bill? Yeah. Yeah. Middle of September, you know, we're really kind of, um, falling back into our, our winter cereals. Um, you know, early on in September, I might throw a little bit of barley in there um, just to get a fast fast green up. Our legumes are pretty much, um, for the most part, off the table. Um, hairy vetch is one that we're playing around with, but that wouldn't be one that I would uh, um, I'd cut my teeth on a few few years before uh, putting that out there. So. And then interseeding-wise, what, what would you say is a good interseeding mix if you're looking at corn, for example? Yeah, from an interseeding standpoint, um, my opinion is, as I like to see, about 15 pounds of seed out there, um, you know, when we're planting. And like I, we were having a conversation the other day is, what's the goal? What is next year's crop? Is it corn or is it beans? And so... At that point, and I'm assuming in a lot of cases it is corn, um, you know, that's where we can start looking at those legumes. And so um, the the balance or most of the mix is going to be really heavy on red clover and crimson clover, like I was saying a little earlier on. Um, you know, interseeding is probably not the first place you start with cover crops on the farm, so you probably got a little bit of experience. Um, I'm not afraid of throwing a little bit of hairy vetch into that mix um and then i do like some grass um and from a grass standpoint um annual ryegrass is our most tolerant species that can handle shade um but with that i'd throw caution too um it doesn't we don't need much um three four pounds is um typically more than more than enough out there so and those those are all overwintering species despite annual in the name of of the ryegrass <laughs> well annual ryegrass has been doing a really good job of overwintering um the last few years um remarkably well to be honest with you um crimson clover supposed to be an annual um it does overwinter from time to time and uh, especially if we get a good snow coverage on it um we've seen that come through fairly fairly strong obviously the red clover is our workhorse um you know, that sticks, a, that sticks around. And, and hairy vetch is, hairy vetch will come through the winter and, and grow next spring. Yeah, and I think we learned this year um, the annual ryegrass in a, a drier, early condition kind of probably hurt us more than helped. So I think that's probably where the caution comes from, Barry, as far as knowing it's going to overwinter and the potential for um, actually pretty darn good growth. I mean, I saw some of the best... If we were trying to grow the annual ryegrass, it was really, really good looking uh, this spring compared to other years. So Yeah, I was shocked by our annual ryegrass. Our annual ryegrass that was in interseeding 
Um, it seemed like all of it came through the winter. Perhaps it even multiplied over the winter. <laughs> and then where we had fields of annual ryegrass for forage last year, that didn't come through as as well as the interseeding. And so, yeah, you really hit on that. Um, you know, with our dry spring this past this past year, um, annual ryegrass really really took some moisture. Um, you know. It, some of us have probably seen those charts about the root structure of annual ryegrass and a lot of our other cover crops, but annual ryegrass has an absolute mat of roots underneath the ground. It's probably our you know, highest volume of, of roots. Um, and so it had a lot of ability to take up early moisture um, this year. And so, yeah, we learned a little bit there. We need to be cautious with that species um, here, well, what here would in you spring. So you're caught terminate at a certain stage if in what stage is that or you, and that's this isn't a yep. what's the way broad recommendation if you will because there's people that want to plant green or want to yep. try some but if if your goal is is if if you want it terminated what what did you say you're seeing that stage is that seems to work the best well yeah in many cases we're you know pro planting green or promoting that um you know and as we went through this year being dry we were kind of thinking okay next spring if we're dry we really probably need to you know terminate annual ryegrass a little bit earlier if we're in an interseeding um fortunately we've been blessed i think everybody would say blessed with um some rain this fall um so we've had some recharge so that kind of maybe makes us rethink it but um those thoughts got to be in our process. I mean, we got to be we got to be looking at that in the spring, thinking about you know, do we need to terminate this a little bit earlier? What's our subsoil moisture look like? What's ten days down the road calling for? Um, you know, this spring everything planted super well, and it seemed like after day eleven, that's when <laughs> it flipped on us. Yeah. It flipped yeah. on us, it flipped on it never, us quick too. Because yeah. I wouldn't say it was wet. But it wasn't. It wasn't dry. It wasn't dry. But either. then when it went dry, it was dry, like dust bowl dry. I, so still, yeah. Barry and I were standing in a field. I don't remember when it was. It was June or whatever, and and the farmer's like, w-, you know, we were talking. The cr- corn looked terrible, and he's like, "Why didn't we? Why didn't we terminate this? It was cereal winter cereal rye, yep. rye, and and we had to remind him that, you know, we've been meeting in this field weekly. Like, remember six weeks ago when." It was so wet, we decided to keep it, <laughs> and that's why we kept it. It was so wet, and it just turned so quickly, like you said, Todd. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, those conversations. Yeah, the spring was kind of a uh, rough at times. And <laughs> there were some yeah. people saying some prayers, and like, gosh, we really need some rain. <laughs> and uh, we were kind of rethinking some of our cover crop, um, you know, strategies. Um, but at the same time. We came to this fall and we really saw some surprises Good. with our soil health and how once we got rain that those systems really efficiently held that moisture and kept that ground wetter longer than our conventional systems. They, so. they finished extremely strong. Like I I knew it would catch up if that's right what I say, but I never thought it would get close yeah. and it got right to the conventional tail, which shocked me. It, it's almost like the you know that team that's way down in the first half like way down like super bowl patriots down to the falcons <laughs> you know, 28 like, to 3 right where you're like you might as well just shut it off but i'm going to keep watching for the commercials kind of a super bowl and yeah. it it 
it sort of had this, yeah, sort of basically when it was August time before you could really see it kind of make that change and finish very strong. So it was, it was that part of this year was probably exciting or nice to see or comforting. Maybe it'd be a better word of like, you don't have to maybe go back to the drawing board completely or any, anything you learned exactly. from this year, Barry, where you'd say like, Oof, this, we got to change this, or is this just a one-off year that we just got to <laughs> maybe not learn anything from? Well, I hope it's a one-off year, but I can guarantee you we did learn some things this year. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, early on, you know, several of you, you know, we talked about this. I was like, man, I felt like we were more like, you know, counselors out there yeah, than we yeah. were agronomists because it, we really had to talk some of these guys, you know, through this and it, it came down to patience. Um, but you're right about that August standpoint. It was about the time winter wheat was coming off where we moved from, do we need to plant emergency forage to we're going to be okay. And then in September we went from, where are we going to put this? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Right. You know, we really like finished This is turning up way yeah. more than we thought. Yeah. Yep. yep. So it was a, it was a hard year, but it was a, at the same time it was rewarding and it, it kind of really, you know, backed up what we're talking about from a soil health standpoint. I really feel the coolest part of like this whole soil health thing is just how resilient it makes soil. Like it just, it's so strong and so resilient it can handle a lot more than than others. Yeah, and that's where I, I kind of made that comment where where we had that good good soil health management um, and we got rain, those fields stayed moist, stayed wet longer. It, it you know, it held that moisture. We didn't lose it from evapor evapotranspiration or transpiration or evaporation. Um, you know, we kept moisture in that profile longer and that, that crop really took off. And then Todd, you're saying it finished strong. It, it remarkably strong finish. So it was, it's fun to watch. So what would you say is the best soil health way or way to track soil health on your farm? So what is, what do you think guys should be doing for whether it's farmers, agronomists, both looking, what should we be looking for at, um, as, as a way to progress or how we know what things are progressing? Well, I mean, the first thing I would do say is, you know, start small, you know, sometimes we want to, you know, jump in and change everything on the farm. And while some guys are, you know, that's the way they go about things. Um, I would say, you know, start small, um, you know, start with that cover crop, start with, you know, trying out some no-till, um, there's some ways out there. We don't really need, you know, the newest planter on the, on the lot to be able to no-till into a cover crop. Um, you know, we, we can get started with some, a lot of times what we have in the shed. Um, and I guess one of the first steps is just, you know, let's try to cut back a little bit on the tillage. You know, we don't have to go straight to planting green right away, but, um, you know, Maybe we're terminating 10 days before planting or you know, trying that on a field and, um, you know, seeing how that, seeing how that works and, um, is, I can't remember the wet year. Was it 2018 or 2019? Both. Both. Yeah. Spring of 2020 even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. True. Yeah. You know, as hard a year as, or years that was in that fall, um, that was a, 
I think I can say it really opened up some eyes and may have been really good for a couple for some producers to see because when we did have structure, when we did have um, you know covers out there, those fields were really really carried in a wet year. Um, and I think we saw it this year where some of our fields that had really good soil structure, you know, soil health out there, they outperformed some of our conventional fields because we held on to that moisture. We kept moisture um, longer. And so um, I guess that's kind of the answer maybe to what you were asking. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's like you touched on earlier, like a lot of it's a visual. It's looking at your field and understanding that the soil has structure, you're not losing your soil to erosion, the water coming off the the farm is cleaner than what it has been in the past. Um, I think one thing we didn't talk about with erosion is like real erosion or um, gullies and stuff that you see less of. In It's not that they completely go away, especially in early in the process, but at least um, that's kind of the plan is as you're yeah. maneuvering through this process of... I do think that's one of the problems with no-till though is you you actually do some so early on you'd see that more because when you're tilling you till over right you cover those that. areas yep. Yep. so yep. you may not sort of see it as much but you know farmers know it's there know what especially a gully is an easy one but yeah. real is a little different where you got those little channels yeah and it takes i mean it takes time once you're starting to no-till you know you don't turn a soil around in in one year you know most times takes a couple of years to you know get that structure going get that infiltration rate back up there all right well we appreciate you taking the time today barry to talk with us and i think we had a lot of good information here so. this is great yeah, thanks yeah, for yeah, great. thank you barry. and i guess just i hope everybody has a great you know holiday and thanksgiving and we have continue to have safe harvest out there so yeah hopefully we have, everybody will continue to be able to finish up harvest 2023 as we haven't gotten any rain this week, so it's been a good kind of catch up. Yeah. Now we're, I think, the elevators are more have been more the issue getting things out onto the off the farm. So, and I guess that one last comment. I just want to thank you guys from Tilt, for, you know, for all the work that you guys have done in this watershed and working with producers, and you know, the partnerships that we have had with with you guys in the Demo Farms and you know with NRCS. So, um, you guys have been top notch. Thank yeah, we you. appreciate Thanks, that, Barry, because yeah. we've we've enjoyed that working with. I mean, that started with Jeff Polinsky that started this company. Yeah. He, he always said, you know, you you work with the co-ops in the area, NRCS, and every you know, kind of everybody worked together in that with the farmer, and we're all on the same team here, not kind of <laughs> trying to yeah, trying to make the farmer more profitable every day. So I think that's exciting the the sort of synergies and yeah. stuff we've been able to to work with you on. All right. Well, thanks again, Barry, for joining us today. And thanks to all listeners for listening to our podcast this week. And as always, happy farming.